Session 10, calling this session, Identifying the Beast. What I mean by that is we're going to look at the biblical prophecies that speak of a final antichrist empire, and we're going to identify the nations that will make up that empire and look at the primary passages that discuss these things and lay the foundations for these things. In Revelation 17, there's this picture, Revelation 17 and 18, of this woman She's dressed in scarlet and she's sitting on a beast with seven heads and ten horns. It's the same beast that is portrayed back in Revelation 12 and 13. And we want to discuss these things. What is the Bible pointing to in this, in this really rich and uh, frightening symbolism? What is the Bible pointing us to and what is it that we can learn from these passages with regard to what is taking place in the earth today? The goal of this session is to look at these passages and specifically identify the seven heads and then beyond that to identify the ten horns. So you have a beast that has seven heads and ten horns and we're going to unpack the symbolism of what that's referring to and then again relate it to what is taking place in the earth today so that we can be people that are faithful to the command of Jesus that we would understand the signs of the times. That biblical prophecy would not be a subject that we just relegate and put on the shelf. That it would be a significant part of our diet. That it makes up such a prominent place throughout the Bible that we would pay attention to these things and we'd be faithful to the commands of Jesus to understand the signs of the times. Now, Revelation 17 Verse 7 through 8 is the verse that discusses the seven heads, the beast with seven heads. And it says this, the seven heads are seven mountains. Now, the biblical uh, motif for a mountain consistently is a reference to kingdoms or empires. So the seven heads are seven empires, seven kingdoms on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is. Now you have this very cryptic, cryptic phrase, sort of this, this prophetic riddle. He says, they are also seven kings. So not only are they seven heads, seven kingdoms, they are also seven kings. And of course, kings and kingdoms correlate. And then he says this, five, five of the kingdoms, five of the kings, they have fallen. One is. So at the time that John was writing this, one was in existence. That's the sixth. Five were passed, one was. And then he says, and the other has not yet come. When he comes, when the final seventh king comes, he must continue a short time. And then he says, the beast, and again, this is referring to the final Antichrist empire that was and is not, is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So again, quite a uh, involved riddle. When it says the beast that was and is not is himself also an eighth, what it's saying is that the seventh head of the beast, the seventh kingdom, it will be that beast that was and is not and is again. In other words, there is a kingdom at the end of the age that will be uh, in line with all of these other beast kingdoms, and then it will suffer, we're going to look at this, a fatal head wound. It will disappear, it will be that which was, it, it is not. And then it comes back as an eight, a revival of the seven. And then it goes into perdition. Now, some claim that this passage is pointing us to Rome, i.e. the city on seven hills. But this position is fraught with fatal flaws. And we're going to look at some of those because, again, 
while most scholars today reject this idea, it is still an idea that has a powerful influence in sort of the, the undercurrent of popular Protestant consciousness as we, uh, in sort of the anti-Catholic polemic that still exists in many uh, portions of, of the Protestant church. Now again, I'm a child of the Reformation, and of course there are theological issues that came out of the Reformation that I'm in full agreement with, but that's a different thing than saying that uh, the Catholic Church is the great whore. You know, it's one thing to say, well, we have various theological disagreements. It's another thing to say that you are the great harlot. So just for clarity, this is what I'm trying to, uh, to cleanse, which is the false idea that Rome or the Catholic Church is the, the harlot, the mystery Babylon that's spoken of in Revelation 17. So the problem, the first problem with the idea that it's speaking of the city of Rome is it says this, the seven heads are seven mountains, and again, that's a reference to kingdoms on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Now, kings and kingdoms correlate. But if these are literal hills, then how can literal hills correspond to seven kings? You see, hills and literal hills and kings do not correlate. They do not correspond. But kingdoms and kings certainly do correspond, don't they? Now, John Walvoord, the deceased John Walvoord, uh, one of the uh, most well-known dispensational prophecy teachers of recent times in his book, All the Prophecies of the Bible, he says, since the hills represent kings, then they do not refer to the seven hills of Rome. So John Walvoord himself rejected outright the idea that this was referring to the city of Rome. Again, kings and kingdoms correspond, but it is not the case with seven literal hills or mountains. And again, how can literal hills fall? Because it says five have fallen. How can literal hills fall? The statement is made, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. When he does come, he will remain a little while. That could not refer to hills. I mean, simply stated. And that's exactly what John Walvoord states in the same book, All the Prophecies of the Bible. The problem number three, and this is, this is a pretty big issue, is that the Greek word for mountain is onos. On the other hand, the Greek word for hill is bunos. But the passage does not use the word for hills, which is what we know the city of Rome as, the city on seven hills. It doesn't use bonos. Instead, it uses the word for mountain. It uses onos. So if we look at, for instance, Luke 3, 5, it says, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. It speaks of mountains it also speaks of hills it uses both word bunos and onos uh, the city of rome the city of rome it actually today has more than seven hills and again we need to remember this is speaking of an end time reality it's not speaking of the first century when uh, john the apostle was writing it's speaking ultimately of the end times today the city of rome sits on much more than seven hills it actually sits on at least nine the passage is speaking about the end times, not the past. Today, Rome has at least nine hills. So, when we look at the passage, the harlot, the harlot sits on seven mountains. Rome sits on nine or potentially ten hills. The equation simply does not work. Again, this is sort of a strange issue, but it's important because we need to identify what it is that this passage, this sort of, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Revelation, this grand crescendo of the whole Bible, as it's culminating, what is it pointing us to? It's not pointing us to the city of Rome. 
Instead, it's pointing us to the Middle East. And as missionaries to Muslims, we need to understand these things. We need to know what the Bible is talking about here. So John Walvoord, again, Dr. Walvoord, suggests that the mountains refer to the great nations of the past, these empires. This would include Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and ancient Rome. As John viewed it, ancient Rome would be the sixth king. And I agree with Dr. Walvoord in that in that sense. So the traditional position interpreting Revelation 17, the city on seven hills, is that you have Egypt, Assyria. Let me just do this. You have five that have fallen. Five have fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Those were the five that have fallen. One is. That's the six. That's the Roman Empire. And then there's the seventh. And then there is the revival of the seventh, which is the eighth. It says the beast that was and is not will be an eighth. So the problem with the traditional position is that they say the seventh is the revived Roman Empire. You go, okay, so in the last days, the Roman Empire will be revived as the seventh. Then what's the eighth? And it's amazing the sort of uh, logical gymnastics that individuals try to, try to implement to try to make this work. And they say, well, it'll be sort of a revived, revived empire. Or they say it's speaking of a global one-world government. Well, how is that a revival of the Roman Empire? And they have all different ways that they try to explain this. And I'm going to present uh, some of the problems with this position and then present an alternative position, which I think flows much better with all of the previous passages that we've looked at, all of the passages throughout the Bible. So the first problem with this idea is that the position has uh, a major flaw, which is that there are not seven, but in fact eight. Or again, we've already discussed this. Revelation 17, 11, the beast that was and is not is himself also an eighth. We can't miss the fact that there is an eighth. It's not just seven. So the position that I'm articulating is this. You have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then the seventh is the Islamic empire, the Islamic caliphate. And that empire existed for roughly 1,400 years. It ruled the Middle East and the various Islamic caliphates the various dynasties the abbasid and the rashidun and the umayyad and then ultimately the ottoman but in the last days that empire will be revived for the past 80 plus years that empire has been in a fallen state it has been broken up it has essentially suffered a fatal head wound but in the days ahead we will see and we are now seeing the revival of the seventh empire So let's look at this concept of the fatal head wound. We begin with Revelation 13, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. So one of the heads, again the seventh head, it has what appears to be a death blow, a deadly wound. It appears to be dead, and then it was healed, and it comes back. And it picks up on this theme again in Revelation 17, verse 11. That's where it says the beast that was and is not is himself the eighth. The eighth will be a revival of the seventh that suffers the fatal head wound. So in 1924, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk abolished the office of the caliph. The caliph is the pope, president, and general of the Islamic world, combining the political, military, and religious all under one head, and he rules the caliphate, the Islamic government. Ataturk believed that uh, this was 
counterproductive to the going forward intellectually and economically of the Islamic world. And so he abolished that office. And for the past 80 years, there has been this gaping hole in the hearts of many orthodox, devout Muslims. They have desired to see the reestablishment of the caliphate. Now the ten horns, so we've identified now the seven heads. We've identified the seven and yea, the eighth heads. We have the uh, Egypt through the final Islamic empire. Now let's touch on the ten horns. The ten horns are what we need to take note of. They all come out of one head, and that is the final eighth head. It is the eighth manifestation of satanic antichrist empire in the earth. Out of that head come ten horns. Revelation 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with a beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist. These will make war with the Lamb. The ten kings are the primary nations and their leaders that comprise the coming final satanic beast empire. The ten kings are the primary nations and their leaders that will make up the coming Antichrist empire. And so in, la- in the last session, we touched on Ezekiel 38 and 39, the battle of Gog and Magog. And I made mention of the fact that this prophetic passage, of all of the various prophetic passages, of all of the biggies that speak of the coming, the nature and the geography and the characteristics of the coming Antichrist empire, it is Ezekiel 38 and 39, where the Lord speaks with clarity, where he directly addresses the Antichrist in a purely futuristic prophecy, without any historical type, without any historical foreshadow, just directly prophesying regarding the last day's Antichrist. That's why this passage is so key. And so what we're going to do is look at Ezekiel 38, 39, this passage, and we're going to break down and identify the nations that are listed in this passage so as to make an effort, a general effort to identify which nations will in all likelihood be the primary nations which will comprise the coming revived Islamic empire. So the nations of Ezekiel 38, you have Gog, that's the leader of the coalition. Then you have Magog, That is the land of Gog. Magog is simply the land of Gog. Then you have Meshech, Tubal, Gomer, Tagorma, or sometimes Beth Tagorma, which is just the house of Tagorma. You have Persia and Put. We're going to walk through and identify each one of these uh, different names so as to relate them to modern day nations. So, as we do that, I want to highlight something. There are really two methods. If, you, if you're reading through the various individuals that have been trying to interpret these uh, nations, what are they pointing to? There's really two primary methods that interpreters have uh, employed. The first is what I call the geographical correlation method, which is to say you look at the names that are mentioned by Ezekiel in the context and time of this prophecy when they were made, and you try to figure out where he was speaking to, where, for instance, Meshach was, where uh, Ezekiel would have understood Meshach to have been in his time. And then you correlate that to a modern nation today. Then there's the other method, which is what I'll call the ancestral migration method. And what that means 
is that people actually try to trace the actual bloodline, the actual ethnicity of the ancient, you know, uh, Meshach or you know, the folks from Meshach and where they migrated and who they intermarried with. And, and what you end up with is this incredible historical goose chase. And really, you have the story of the intermingling and intermarrying and transmigration of various people groups. And you end up with, really, essentially the whole world. Uh, it's very difficult to do. I would argue that the geographic correlation method is the only method which makes sense and the only method which is consistent with the biblical uh, usage in terms of what it's pointing to. Now, a lot of people will ask, what about Rosh? Because as, it, as I listed the various nations, I left out Rosh. And there's been this widely held belief in many prophecy circles that says that this word is to be interpreted as a proper noun, as a name, and specifically that it is referring to Russia. I want to put this idea to rest. I want to put this myth to rest. Many other scholars say that it should simply be translated as a simple noun or an adjective, simply meaning the head or the chief, foremost or the top. Rosh is used 598 times in the authorized version of the Bible. Almost 600 times, literally every time it is used to mean, as I just mentioned, head, chief, top, or something very similar. Never once is it used as a proper name. Yet for some reason, for some reason, Americans and Westerners who have a very strong historical political conflict with the nation of Russia have found a reason in this one verse suddenly to read the word Rosh as if it is a proper name. The name Rosh is simply the name that we find in Rosh Kodesh or Rosh Hashanah, the chief or the head day of the year. It's the Jewish New Year. We're very familiar with this term. Uh, it is not a, uh, a proper name. Now, Dr. Merrill Unger, in his book, Beyond the Crystal Ball, he says this, quote, linguistic, evi linguistic evidence for the equation of Rosh with Russia is confessedly only presumptive. In other words, it is simply a presumption that that's what it is speaking of, but it is without biblical merit. We need to be careful of newspaper eschatology that is where we look specifically to our enemies and try to read them into the biblical text as opposed to allowing the biblical text to point us where we are to look the problem number two with seeing rosh as a proper noun is that it is inconsistent inconsistent methodology which is this most of these uh, those that attempt to see rosh as referring to russia and i've read i've got all the books and i've gone through them what they do is they trade methods. And, and it's really tricky, but what they do is they go through all of the various names and they use the geographic correlation method. So if um, Persia is referring to Iran, they'll say, well, this refers to Iran. But then when they get to Rosh, suddenly they switch methods and they follow the bloodline method. You see, they switch methods and all of a sudden they say, well, yes, in Ezekiel's day, Rosh was a, a small people that lived in the region just north of the Black Sea in modern-day Ukraine. And then they bring out the big story about how the Scandinavians came down and they intermarried and they became the Rosh, which ultimately became the Russian people. But this is an inconsistent interpretive uh, method. If either we stick to the geographic correlation method or we stick with the bloodline lineage method, but we can't suddenly shift methods because we want to prove 
that Russia is spoken of in this prophecy. You see, in the United States, and, and really especially during the Cold War, books such as The Coming Russian Invasion of Israel, they, they, they did great. These were very uh, you know, inflammatory and exciting titles. But the bottom line is, if you were to say The Coming Ukrainian Invasion of Israel, that's not really quite as exciting, is it? No, because the Russians have historically been the political enemies of the United States, many American Western authors have employed newspaper eisegesis, and they've, they've tried to read their political enemies into the text of the prophecies, and this is a big no-no. Problem number three, the internal inconsistencies. You see, the wording of the passage says this, it is Gog of Magog, who is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So Magog, Meshach, and Tubal are all located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So if that's the case, then how could Rosh be Russia? This would be akin to saying something like this. You, Obama, of the U.S., Russia, president of Washington, and leader of New York. You know, just this insertion of Russia, this foreign entity, in the middle of a statement which is clearly all pointing to Asia Minor, it simply doesn't work. It simply does not make any sense. And again, it is an anomalous passage. The overwhelming emphasis of all end-time passages point us to the Middle East. We've seen this throughout the various sessions. We've seen that the overwhelming emphasis of the biblical prophets are on the nations that surround Israel. Now, does that mean that uh, Russia will have no relevance with regard to biblical prophecy or they'll play no political uh, have no political relevance in the days to come? No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that the Bible is simply not focused on Russia, nor is it focused on the United States. Again, the Bible is Jerusalem, Israel, and Middle Eastern-centric. Yet the Lord says, and this is another big key, that the other prophets spoke of Gog. So, I always bring this up, and again, I mentioned this earlier, but the Lord says to Gog, He says, you're the one... You're the one that all of the other prophets are speaking of. So, if in fact Gog is a leader from Russia, which is what most of the popular biblical prophecy books are still teaching to this day, then I've challenged them and I've said, if that's the case, then you show me one other passage anywhere in the prophets that are pointing to a Russian invasion of Israel. Show me one. And again, they're silent. They're silent. Although the text clearly says that all the other prophets are speaking of Gog, there's nowhere where there's any clear reference to Russia. They can't do it. And that's because Russia is not spoken of in Ezekiel 38. So, in conclusion, Rosh, the prophetic imagination of the church, is captured with the notion that Russia is prophesied in the Bible to soon invade Israel and be utterly destroyed. But the biblical evidence for this is primarily based on the misinterpretation of one word. This idea has captured the imagination of the church, and yet it is based on the false misinterpretation of one single word. The arguments in favor of a Russian invasion are fraught with significant problems. So, with that said, who is Gog? During Ezekiel's day, Gog was the name that was given to the king of Lydia, who was called Gyges, by the Greeks, or Gugu by the Assyrians. Thus, Gog, the Antichrist, is clearly associated with Lydia, 
which is in modern-day Turkey. Lydia uh, made up the majority of Asia Minor. In fact, the entire western two-thirds of the modern-day nation of Turkey was ancient Lydia. And Gog was the leader or the king of Lydia. You can see a map there which shows that whole region, the Lydian kingdom. And then we have what I call the second clue. Gog is the ruler over the land of Magog. Now, the passage again is that it is Gog of Magog. He's the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And as we look at the various Bible atlases, Bible dictionaries, and all of our commentaries and resources, scholars have really given us two options to interpret who is Gog. What is this passage speaking of? The first option is that it refers to the ancient Scythians. The second is that it refers to Asia Minor and the Lydians. Again, that it would be associated with Gog, the king of the Lydians. So let's look at option number one. Is Magog referring to Scythia? Now, this is something which is um, claimed by many, many very ancient uh, historians from ancient times but yet they are still you know far far more modern than ezekiel so just because someone is ancient doesn't mean that they're right of course they're closer to ezekiel but they're still very very far from him now scythia was a vague term that referred that referred to any number of barbaric northern peoples to identify magog as the scythians it's without support from historical anthropology It is claimed by, again, some various uh, biblical or ancient historians, but there is no anthropological support for this. So here is a map which shows the potential region of the ancient Scythians. And if we were to compare that to a modern map of the political uh, nations of the world, what we would see is that it includes many of the... uh, Central Asian nations, the Tajikistan, the Uzbekistans, the Turkmenistan, uh, Kazakhstan, and all of the various Istans, and then it cuts up just a little bit, a sliver, into Russia. But most of the nations that ancient Scythia uh, occupied were the the former Soviet Union, uh, southern Central Asian nations, and then it touches into uh, Russia a little bit. However... Uh, let me list them all. These are the nations that Scythia would have uh, included. Uh, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Ukraine, again a little bit of Russia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. Now, what would sell better in the Christian bookstore? The coming Russian invasion of Israel or the coming Kazakhstanian invasion of Israel? You see... The passage, if we are to to take the geographic, the historical geographic method, which is a responsible method, it's primarily pointing us to the Central Asian nations and just a little teeny sliver of Russia. And just because the ancient Scythians, which may have been the, the Magogites, touched into the very southern edge of Russia, we then say this entire massive entity is going to be the primary player in the coming massive invasion of Israel. Again, this is an idea which has come to dominate much of the church. It needs to be dispelled. It's unbiblical. If Russia is only one of roughly 12 countries that Scythia might include, then why do virtually all popular prophecy teachers almost exclusively focus on Russia, but virtually none on the Ukraine, Kazakhstan, or any of the other major nations that a Scythian identification would entail? I think we've answered that. 
further problems. If Magog is Scythia, once again, then the verse simply makes very little sense. It would be saying, Gog of Russia and Central Asia, chief prince of Turkey. Again, Meshach and Tubal, clearly in Turkey, it wouldn't make any sense. So again, the wording of the passage has to make sense. So I would suggest to you that the second option, that Magog is a reference to ancient Lydia, works with all of the other options that we've looked at. That Gog was the king of Lydia, and Magog is simply the land of Gog. It is referring to Asia Minor. And then clue number three, this is the clincher. Gog is the head or the ruler of Meshach and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal are clearly modern-day Turkey. Thus, Gog of Magog must be a reference to modern-day Turkey. What about Gomer? Gomer is simply Gemara or uh, Cimmeria, which is ancient uh, Cappadocia, today uh, Cappadocia. It is simply central Turkey. So the region of central Turkey is what uh, the passage is pointing us to. Beth to Gorma is primarily southeastern Turkey, but it could also include some of the regions of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. So then uh, I've got a map here which sort of shows that potential broader region of Beth Tagorma, Persia. Persia is the modern-day nation of Iran, primarily Iran, but it could also include some of Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Turkmenistan. So there I've uh, laid out the, the potential regions of the ancient Persian uh, Empire. Kush, what about Kush? Again, primarily Sudan, but it could also include Ethiopia, Somalia, as well as uh, Eritrea and uh, Djibouti. It was the region south of Egypt, but is primarily pointing us to Sudan. As far as how south uh, how southern that uh, identification was intended to go, we can't be sure, but it's primarily pointing us to the modern-day nation of Sudan, south of Egypt. Put. Put is primarily referring us to Libya, but it could also very well include Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and the North African nations, the Maghreb, that whole region in northern Africa. That could be uh, what the biblical reference was to put. Basically, the regions to the west of Egypt. So, we've gone through and we've highlighted the ten horns. We've identified the seven heads as well as the ten horns of the coming revived Islamic Empire. And here you have a map which shows us the most likely nations that will comprise the coming revived Islamic Empire in the days ahead. And once again, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is pointing us to the very same region that we've seen in other passages, in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. In the, in, with reference to the ancient, uh, or the revival, the Neo-Seleucid and the Neo-Ptolemaic dynasties, pointing us once again. This is what the Bible does. It points us to the same region over and over and over again. It emphasizes these things so that we will not miss it. The Lord wants us to get it. He wants us to get these things. So, <clears throat> why is this important? Well, as we've already discussed, there is this cry throughout the Islamic world for the reestablishment of the caliphate. There is the cry since the abolishment of the office of the caliph and the abolishment of the government of the caliphate throughout the Islamic world to see that reestablished. And they believe that it is through the establishment of the caliphate that they will see the revival 
of the glory days of Islam, the former glory days of Islam, and that through unity that will give them the ability to defeat and conquer and overcome the non-Muslim, the Western world, as well as the nation of Israel, and most specifically Israel, and of course the United States. And there is this cry throughout the Islamic world, and there are various groups that are attempting and pushing for and yearning for and speaking of the revival of the caliphate. And as missionaries to the Islamic world, we need to understand these concepts. We need to be aware of what's taking place in the earth. We need to be able to be conversant with Muslims regarding this issue. Because this is the vision of Islam. This is the vision of of many of the devout Muslims. This is the, the message in the earth that is in conflict with our message. Our message is concerning a kingdom that is about to break forth on the earth. There is a very literal kingdom of God that is about to break forth on the earth. It is the kingdom of Messiah. The caliphate is the alternative, the counterfeit, that Satan is going to raise up in the last days to try to uh, distract the peoples of the earth, saying this is that which we should look forward to. It is the imposter. And as missionaries, as evangelists, we need to be able to explain to Muslims Explain to Muslims the worthlessness of a caliphate in comparison to the kingdom of God. This is essentially their gospel. This is what they are working for. This is what they are pushing for. We have an alternative message. We have an alternative gospel. The caliphate would be that entity that would establish Islamic Sharia law in the earth. Throughout history, whenever Islamic Sharia law has been implemented, it has always resulted in the the crushing of human rights and the rights of non-Muslims, the rights of women under Muslim men and children under Muslim, uh, you know, mistreatment, it has never resulted in the uh, the exaltation of the human condition. It has always resulted in the worst and most gross violations of human rights and the crushing of freedoms that we've ever seen. Look to any nation today which has desired and is working to implement Islamic Sharia law. In the recent times, we saw the Taliban, the Afghanistan under the Taliban, some of the most brutal mistreatment of children and women imaginable and non-Muslims imaginable in the nation of Saudi Arabia. Incredible mistreatment of women are not even allowed to drive. They're not allowed to go out of the house without a man to accompany them. In the nation of Iran, you have... You have people whipped in the streets or hung for being homosexuals. Now, Obviously, as a Christian, I'm not in favor of homosexuality, but I don't want to see homosexuals uh, uh, executed. This is something that the Lord will deal with them on, but I don't desire to see laws which would execute homosexuals. But yet, from a liberal perspective, this is what is taking place in the Islamic world. And yet, you don't hear much of a clamor from the uh, liberal West. We've seen recently, in recent years, we saw a gathering of roughly 100,000 people at a Hizbut Tahrir conference in Indonesia crying out for the revival of the caliphate. This is an idea, a concept, which will continue to rise in the days ahead. In the Islamic world, this is huge. We need to be very well aware of what is taking place. Ezekiel 38 told us that the coming revived Islamic Union would be led by Turkey. Not only is the Islamic world calling for a revived caliphate, but many are specifically calling for a Turkish-led caliphate, and Turkey itself uh, 
is pushing for that exactly as the Bible said it would happen. So, beloved, in conclusion, I just want to appeal to you. We've talked about a lot of things in these various sessions. We've talked about the kingdom of God. We've talked about a lot of different things that the Bible is speaking of. These are not things that we can just ignore. These are things which touch deeply into the heart of the Islamic world. These are things which are deeply relevant to the Muslims that you will come in contact with. These are things which deeply affect the very messages, the very message and the hope that we're proclaiming. There is a message which is rising in the earth. It is the Islamic call for a caliphate. It is a satanic counterfeit call. We have a much better message. We have a much more beautiful message. We have an appealing message. And we have a true message. It is an eternal kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom. We need to stand firm in these days ahead. We need to go back to the gospel of the kingdom and and preach that with everything that we do. Again, I want to reiterate, even unto the point of embracing death. Amen.